This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon. Um, welcome to the RAND Congressional Briefing today. My name is Wynn Burkle, and I am the Director of the Office of Congressional Relations for the RAND Corporation here in D.C. Uh, let me tell you briefly about RAND before we begin. The RAND Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Um, the RAND Corporation uh, focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, law and business, the environment, and more. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of political and commercial pressures. We serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's most pressing challenges. RAND disseminates its findings and recommendations as widely as possible to benefit the public good. More than 10,000 RAND reports, including the one you're going to hear about today, are available online at www.rand.org. Those are free and they're PDF. So today you're going to hear from Martin Lubicki, uh, who has been a senior management scientist at RAND since 1998. His research focuses on the impacts of information technology on domestic and national security. He asked me to shorten his bio, so there's a big section here I'm not going to talk to you about. But let me just say that his most recent projects have examined the subjects of international demographics, biometrics, and multi-factor authentication, organizing the Air Force and Department of Homeland Security for cyber operations, exploiting cell phones in counterinsurgency operations, and assessing multiple DARPA programs. Prior to joining RAND, he spent 12 years at the National Defense University, three years on the Navy staff as a program sponsor for industrial preparedness, and three years uh, with the U.S. Government Accountability Office. He holds a PhD uh, from UC Berkeley and has a master's degree in city planning also from UC Berkeley. So the RAND study uh, that you'll hear about today is called Cyber Deterrence and Cyber War. Uh, again, PDF copies uh, of this, if you weren't able to get one of the copies up front because we had a limited number, um, they're free on the web in PDF format at www.rand.org. So with warnings about U.S. cyber vulnerabilities, the Obama administration is currently pushing Congress to pass a comprehensive cybersecurity bill, and the Senate and House committees are moving forward to craft such legislation right now as we speak. Clearly, the protection of cyberspace from potential foreign adversaries has become a vital national interest because of its importance both to the economy and to military power. Uh, but uh, Martin contends that traditional warfighting techniques such as force, offense, defense, and deterrence can't be blindly applied to cyberspace. Uh, failure to do so may hinder policy and planning. And so with that, let me turn it over to Martin Lebicki. Thanks. Let me start a little, uh, our journey with a small trip down memory lane. Back about a half a century ago, there were a lot of folks, including, of course, at RAND, that spent a lot of time thinking about nuclear, the use of nuclear weapons, and more specifically, understood pretty much from the get-go that nuclear weapons presented a far different problem for defense than conventional weapons did. You got into a situation in which nine, you knocked out nine of 10 incomings at you. The one out of 10 that got through would almost certainly make it a very, very bad day for you. And it became clear to the RAND analysts that our traditional notions of defense didn't fit the nuclear context very well. And so was born from the 40s and the 50s a theory of deterrence. As stated in Bernard, by Bernard Brody in 1946, the purpose of nuclear weapons is to make sure that nuclear weapons aren't used. 
And from that construct, we got such wonderful theological uh, um, notions as second strike, extended deterrence, counterforce versus countervalue, a long, long list. We fast forward to the present, and people are still worried about, new, uh, about cyber, people are worried about cyberspace. And the reasons are fairly obvious. We are becoming an increasingly digitized society. Our digital devices are becoming increasingly networked. Because they're becoming increasingly networked, and these networks span the globe, it is possible to, become, to be attacked from any corner of the world without necessarily having anybody tra uh, traverse US borders. People have spent a great deal of money on defense. Uh, estimates are tens of billions of dollars. I think I've seen an estimate of $60 billion. But all you have to do is open the newspaper to realize that we don't have the problem left. As a result of which, a number of individuals have said, look, the way we approach the problem of cyber is the way we did things in, world, in, in the Cold War. That is, we create a deterrence policy. A deterrence policy essentially says, if you attack us, we'll attack you. History tells us that that approach kept people from using nuclear weapons in World War II and saw us through the Cold War. And the result, and the question therefore is raised is, can a similar policy, can a cyber deterrence policy basically keep us safe from the threat of cyber weapons? That's the one I want to explore. I was given further impetus in this question by a statement made by General Cartwright when he was the head of the Strategic Command. He made a statement before Congress about five years ago. And he said, look, history tells us that the best defense is a good offense. And based on the problems we're having in cyberspace, it would seem to be a reasonable conclusion. And I'm paraphrasing him a bit. It would seem to be a reasonable conclusion that the United States build up its capability to conduct offensive cyber operations. And on that basis, I started thinking about this. The report came out about two years later. I want to discuss cyber deterrence. I want to talk about decisions made by states. In other words, the decision making to have deterrence, how you respond to nuclear, what policy to cyber, excuse me, what policies you pursue, not the questions about how you actually use cyber weapons in the context of a war. And of course, I want to ask the question, in this realm, is offense the best defense? Now, by talking about deterrence in kind, which was the rationale, of course, for building up an offensive cyber war capability, we exclude many different types of threats. We exclude crime, the threat that comes from criminals. We also exclude by discussion, in many ways by definition, non-state actors. The reason is fairly straightforward. If we wake up one morning and we find that, that Al-Qaeda has crashed the electric power grid, it does us no good to threaten Al-Qaeda that we will take down their power grid because they don't happen to have a power grid to take down or any infrastructure whatsoever. There's no comparability. So when we talk about cyber deterrence, when we talk about deterrence policies in general, we're talking about policies that are applicable against other states. Now, in running through the cyber deterrence logic, I'm also going to be talking about cyber war. Cyber war and cyber deterrence are linked in two opposite ways. The first way that they are linked is that failures in cyber deterrence produce cyber war, almost by definition. If I try to deter you and you are not deterred, I will know you are not deterred by the fact that you have attacked me. But they're also linked in another way. 
If we or anybody else threatens a cyber attack on uh, someone, it's not intrinsically obvious that that threat is going to work. It's not like a nuclear weapon. You see a nuclear weapon exploded over, um, over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and you don't really have to go to contortions to figure out that a nuclear weapon that explodes over you will do a great deal of damage. But as it turns out in cyberspace, that's not the case. In cyberspace, the vulnerability of a system becomes very, very important. And it is possible for somebody who's intent on mischief in cyberspace to persuade themselves that their systems have no vulnerabilities or no consequential vulnerabilities. As a result, the attempt to instantiate cyber deterrence to prove that there's something there may require you to retaliate against somebody who's testing you. You retaliate against them, they may counter-retaliate against you. And then, of course, you do it back to them, and before you know it, you're in a full-fledged cyber war trying to instantiate a policy of deterrence which was generated to keep you out of cyber war in the first place. Okay, let's start off briefly with a definition. What is cyber war? I'm going to use a definition I suspect very few of you have heard unless you have happened to be in a former brief, previous briefing of mine, in which case you have my apologies, okay? Cyber war is the use of information, zeros and ones, to harm target information systems, okay? The word harm is very important here. And by harming them, there are basically two classes of effects you can hope for. One is you can make them fail. The classic, they hacked into the power grids and the lights go off. The other one, however, is corrupting their contents. Somebody hacks into a bank, and all of a sudden, the numbers that indicate who has what money in the bank aren't the same as they're supposed to be. We can call this one dis uh, corruption, and we can call this one disruption. And they're both effects you can try to achieve with cyber war. Now, here, in fact, is the bottom line. Cyber war is information attacking information, in other words, what we know, or how we can control things by attacking information systems. Note that there's a fair degree of indirection going on here. Now, as sort of an indication that RAND is a quasi-academic institution, I'll notice that the definition of what cyber war is not exceeds the definition of what cyber war isn't. But the most important line is the top one. For our purposes, we don't define cyber attack as including cyber espionage. Why do we make that distinction? Because according to historical law norms and what can constitute the laws of war, nations do not have the right to react violently or with force because other nations have spied on them. Spying is, to use a Latin phrase, not considered a causes belly. A nation can respond to espionage by being irritated. It can respond to espionage by making it harder for somebody to carry out espionage. It can respond to espionage by carrying out espionage back. But what is not legitimate in international relations is to respond to espionage by retaliating with the use of force. Now, it turns out that most of what you're going to hear about cyber attacks is in fact espionage. Whether it's stealing identity, whether it's stealing intellectual property in terms of the, what's called the advanced persistent threat, and so on and so forth. I would offer that there have really only been four cases that can constitute cyber attack in the way that we understand attack and warfare. 
that is to harm target informations or to disrupt them. And they would be the DDoS attack on, excuse me, I'm going into jargon, the distributed denial of service attack against Estonia in 2007, the distributed denial of service attack against Georgia in 2008, possibly Israel's use of cyber weapons in 2007 against the Syrian radar, and the use of cyber weapons against uh, the Iranian centrifuge facility at Natanz, also known as Stuxnet, okay? But there are a number of things that, that cyber warfare is often conflated with. Electronic warfare. Uh, sometimes people consider them the same and sometimes people consider them different. They operate at different, different levels. This one operates at the physical level. Cyber war operates at the virtual level. I can take out directed energy. Psychological operations. When you talk about, the, back when I started in this business about 15 to 20 years ago, information warfare, what they called it then, included psychological operations and cyber war. That's since been separated. Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, whacking websites of people we don't like. Um, I'm going to take that one off the table for the time being. And finally, I had mentioned uh, distributed denial of service attacks. And I want to stay away from that, mostly because they tend to have relatively weak effects. And anybody who's taken a look at Russia's strategic accomplishments in Estonia and Georgia will come away highly unimpressed that they in fact did what anyone would have hoped they could have done. Okay? Now, what cyber war cannot usually do, and this is important, cyber war usually cannot create direct effects. Now you're going to ask what about Stuxnet, and I'll get to that in a minute. Okay? And the reason why it cannot create direct effects is precisely because of the malleability of the computer that cyber war is going against. You're basically going against a bunch of ones and zeros, and you're trying to change them in certain respects. If you as a defender have done your job correctly, you have the basis to be able to restore the ones and zeros. These days there's really no good excuse for getting your data wiped out. Because if you're at all serious about your information, you've got it backed up. Everything but probably the most recent transactions. And we find out that in theory and in practice, systems can usually be restored. Now the question you probably have in your mind, what about Stuxnet? Stuxnet is in, in many ways the exception that proves the rule. What had happened was an attack had gone into the uh, Natanz centrifuge plant, had misinstructed the controller that governed the centrifuges, and as a result of misinstructing the, the controller, caused the centrifuges to work in such a way that they cycled low and they cycled high, and after enough cycling, they eventually broke and wore, off, wore down prematurely. Okay? I want to just make a couple of comments about Stuxnet. First of all, you've been following the literature, you realize it was technically possible. DHS conducted an experiment about two years earlier. But I also want to say something about the victims of Stuxnet. If you take a look at the frequencies that they were talking about, 200 hertz and 1600 hertz, they're both in the audible ranges, okay? Any of you folks who have dealt with machinery long enough probably have a sixth sense about how machinery sounds when it works well and it works badly. The answer is, why didn't the Iranians understand that their centrifuges didn't sound right? Part of the answer is they didn't have an industrial culture. Part of the answer is the centrifuges were dangerous and nobody really wanted to stand next to them. Okay? Sometimes they blew up. Not so, not so happy if you're standing next to them. They also were not built with safety guards. The things that keep machinery from going above a certain frequency, 
Okay? When you're in an industrial culture, you understand the importance of these things. You understand the importance of governors and regulators. And apparently they did not. Oh, by the way, because of their equipment was bought on the black market and the gray market, there was nobody they could call and say, hey, what's wrong with my machine? Which is one of the advantages, I suppose, of an embargo program. Let me talk a little bit about this be used repeatedly. If you realize that you've been the victim of a cyber attack, chances are fairly good, not 100%, but fairly good that you can figure out how the attack took place and most important, what vulnerability in the system was exploited to allow the attack to take place. Cyber attacks only work because systems don't do what the design specs say they do. They might do 99.999%, but that 0.0001%, just a bit stream-wide, is large enough for a hacker to get in and do their mischief, okay? But once you figure out how you've been attacked, you've got a fair shot at reacting to it either by routing around the particular problem or by having a, a, a patch, the vulnerability being fixed by the, the person who supplied your system. Which is, by the way, why when everybody said Stuxnet 1 would soon be followed by Stuxnet 2, we haven't seen Stuxnet 2. Part of the reason is that when we took Stuxnet 1 apart, we found four vulnerabilities that allowed Stuxnet to take place. The four vulnerabilities were each solved in late 2010, about the same season in which Stuxnet itself was, was announced. So I'm not saying you couldn't do that again, but if you did it again, you'd have to find a whole set of new vulnerabilities to exploit. Which means the bag of tricks can be depleted. And that becomes actually important when you think about a strategic sense, but I want to hold that thought for a minute. Okay? Another particular notion is the notion of preemption, or the notion of indications and warning. If you want to talk about how much indication and warning the Iranians had for Stuxnet, it was negative 12 months. I strongly suspect that the Iranians did not know that they had in fact been hacked until I read about it in the New York Times. This, by the way, is different from most forms of combat. Okay? Now, what about taking out, you know, you have some information on the attacker, so you're going to take out the attacking instrument. Well, maybe you will. Let me say two things about that. If you're really clever, you're going to attack from a multiplicity of instruments. There are, after all, about a billion computers in this world. By one estimate, there are roughly 100 million computers that are pwned by somebody else at any one point in time. Getting a number of command and control servers or a peer-to-peer -peer command and control server architecture, not so difficult. But let's say, in fact, you're operating from a single computer. And let's say I can take it out. Well, what's a computer cost to replace these days? $500? What does the software to enable the attack cost these days? A CD-ROM, perhaps? A DVD-ROM? You're not going to get the hacker. You're not going to get the information in the hacker's mind that allowed them to do it, which is the most important component. You may be able to knock out the network connection, but the world does not have a shortage of network connections. So you have to think that the model of how you go against cyber war is really different than the model of how you go against conventional war. Okay, so much for the introduction. Let me talk about how cyber attacks might have a number of motives. From a strategic perspective, it actually looks different. Now, this is a hypothetical, and the situation is as follows. 
Taiwan is getting restive, China is getting impatient, China decides that the way to get rid of its Taiwan crisis is to go and take the island of Taiwan. But China has a little problem. They believe that if they try to take Taiwan, the United States 7th Fleet, the rest of the United States military will show up and make it very difficult for the Chinese. So someone in the Politburo has this really brilliant idea. They say, comrade, what we're going to do is hack into the US power grid and turn off all the lights in the United States as a way of conveying to the United States the lack of wisdom that would be associated with the United States intervening in the Taiwanese dispute. Now the question I'm going to have to ask you is, was this such a brilliant idea on that fellow's part? And the answer is maybe not. Two reasons why. First reason, when I hit you over the head and I stand with my fist cocked for a second, for a second hit, you're probably going to have two emotions running around. One, anger that you've been hit the first time, fear that you might be hit the second time. If anger is the predominant emotion, you're going to do something other than what I want you to do. If fear is the predominant emotion, you're probably going to do something that I want you to do. So there's a delicate balance here. Now, as it turns out in cyberspace, because cyber attacks are not repeatable, not in the specific and not in the general, your fear factor is going to decline over time, but your anger factor will not. And if I wanted a coercive instrument, I'd be much better off looking for something where the fear factor stays constant or rises, not one that declines. So that's something to keep in mind. Second issue to keep in mind is one of what I would call narratives. If you're China, what is the narrative that you're trying to convey for Taiwan, right? It's a local issue. Taiwan has historically been part of China, should be part of China. It's only because of Japanese and US imperialism that Taiwan is an independent country. We are merely rectifying a historical mistake. This does not mean that we're going to march on South Korea or Japan or the Philippines or Vietnam next. But once the lights go out in the United States, will the United States perceive it as a local conflict? Or will it perceive it as a strategic conflict? And all of a sudden, I would argue, the US interest in the outcome in Taiwan goes up and not down, which from China's perspective is probably not a good idea. Okay. Now, let me take a some, some scenario which is almost the same, but a little different. And in this scenario, China concedes that the United States is going to come across the Pacific. So China's goal in this case, and remember I'm still talking hypotheticals, China's goal in this case would be to slow down the American military. In other words, make it difficult for the military to deploy and go overseas. And the best way to do that is to attack the logistics infrastructure. And by attacking the logistics infrastructure, hoping that the United States might get there a day late, two days late, so that the Chinese position on Taiwan would that be that much stronger. And at best, we might conclude that we cannot lodge China from Taiwan, or we'd have to accept it as a new status quo. Now, here's the question. Would that be a good idea, if you would presume everything else? And the answer is, why wouldn't you want to do it? Okay? In this case, we're talking about operational cyber war. That is, cyber war in the context of a kinetic war. And that makes a certain amount of sense. But I want to sort of a small detour turn the question around. You wake up one day, and you find out that your logistics infrastructure has been completely scrambled. What's your first question you're going to ask? Is it going to be about deterrence? No. I'm going to say that that's going to be your fourth question. The first question you're going to ask is, because the timelines of a cyber attack are temporary, I would argue measured in days, we really don't know. 
The first question you're going to ask is, when's the war coming? And where's the war coming? You have now gotten your first indication of warning that something is about to take place. And maybe it's time you tuned up your indication and warning sensors to figure out where. By the indication and warning sensors includes all methods, diplomats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Your second question is, how can I appear to recover as quickly as I can? Now, why did I use the word appear? Because in some context, the attack may have been carried out by somebody who doesn't know whether the attack is going to work or not. After all, cyber weapons are relatively new on the scene. You can't necessarily guarantee something. So if the attacker said, okay, I'm going to attack you, then I'm going to see if you're harmed, and if you are, I'm going to go ahead kinetically, what you want to convey back to the attacker is in fact you haven't been harmed very much or very long. The third question is, how do I recover for real? And the fourth question is, okay, now what do I want to do about it? Well, if it turns out you're in a kinetic war, that's going to subsume anything you do in cyberspace. If you're not in a kinetic war, then you have time to think about it. But notice that in this calculation, the deterrence doesn't rank all that high in terms of the things you want to think about. Okay, now I'm going to go into the actual deterrence itself. Probably sounds axiomatic. If you're going to have deterrence, you're going to have to know who hit you. Right? There are three reasons for that. The first reason is you don't want to hit the wrong guy back. So the question is how much confidence do you need before you can satisfy yourself that you can take the risk that you might hit the wrong guy back? Second is if the cyber attack retaliation is public, important caveat, you're going to have to want to make a case to the rest of the world. And oh, by the way, standing up in front of the rest of the world and say, our intelligence sources say it was country X, may not work as well as it used to. Okay. Finally, and this is going to sound even stranger, you want to convince the folks that you're retaliating against that you're retaliating against the attack, not just because you don't happen to like them. Now, it might seem obvious that the attacker knows that they've attacked. But in fact, if the attacker has attacked many times and you're only retaliating for the one that you have the confidence that you know about, the attacker's going to say, why now? What's going on here? And maybe the lesson won't be learned. You don't need proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. All you have to do is you have to conclude that the risks of not acting exceed the risks of acting and making a mistake. You don't even have to prove to your own satisfaction that it was the attack was carried out under the command and control of the other state. All you have to do is make a plausible enough case that the other state could have stopped it. But one thing you do have to worry about is what the thresholds are. Now in kinetic warfare, the United States has responded militarily to actions which have killed only a handful of Americans. We retaliated against Libya in 1986 for the discotheque bombing in Berlin. We went to war against Mexico in 1845 after claiming that the, that the Mexican government had killed Americans in what we consider to be uh, US territory. Okay? But cyber attacks have yet to kill anybody. Still, you can cause a great deal of damage economically without any casualties. So the question then becomes is what is the threshold that what you want to operate in? The answer could be various and one can debate that, but it's important to make up your mind, it's important to communicate what you've made up your mind to, and it's also important to measure what it is. None of these are trivial. Okay. Now, is attribution easy? Well, let me give you a comparison. 
You're standing in Poland in 1939 and a Wehrmacht tank comes by your door on September 2nd. You're not going to scratch your chin and say, I wonder what that is and I wonder what this guy is doing here. It's obvious what they're doing here. But in cyber, it doesn't have that obviousness. And so you're going to have to figure things out. You don't have the physical evidence. Yes, there is such a thing called cyber forensics. And yes, there's a lot of money going into it. But it still does not have the reputation and the quality of physical uh, forensics. Now here's an important one. Even today we have forensic uh, attribution problems. And we live in a world, at least among states, where the consequences of getting caught are relatively small. Think how much tougher it would be if there were serious consequences for getting caught. And then you could imagine that the difficulties we have now with attribution will only get that much worse. Now there are some people that say we can find the box an attack comes from. But I would raise the question here is, what does that tell you about who carried out the attack? Imagine how many ways you can carry out an attack without necessarily coming out of your own box. It could be a pwned computer. It could be a bot that you've traveled through. Okay? It could be an open Wi-Fi connection. There are a lot of open Wi-Fi connections in this world. Uh, Best Western, your local library, small airports, Starbucks, you can name them. And I'm also, sometimes I wonder whether you couldn't carry out an attack from a cell phone. Wipe off your fingerprints, throw it in the garbage can, and you're home free. Except, to be serious, you're not going to be home free. That is, there's always going to be some sort of chance that you're going to get attribution. Sometimes because the attacker will tell you, right? This is, I'm doing it for coercion. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's a bunch of coy hints. So there's that to contend with. They may use a known modus operandi. Ah, I've seen this guy before and I'm seeing him again. There is, he may make a mistake, a classic in intelligence, in the intelligence business, and finally through all sorts of intelligence. So, the chances of attribution, definitely not 100%, but not reliably 0%. But I'm going to ask the question, how much attribution are you going to need before you have a policy, right? Let's say there's an attack on the United States. Let's say we don't have enough confidence to attribute it, so we don't respond. What's the attacker thinking? The attacker's saying, I attacked the United States. We know the United States knows all because it has a central intelligence agency. Yet the United States refused to respond. I can therefore conclude that the United States threat is hollow. That they do not want to get into a cyber war. And then I'm thinking, well that's not the only threat, implicit or explicit, the United States has made. What about all the other deterrence policies the United States has? If your cyber deterrence policy is hollow, what happens to your nuclear deterrence policy? What happens to the deterrence policies where you, in fact, do have fairly good attribution? It's something to think about. Okay, getting back to the nuclear analogy, what about prediction of battle damage? What can you hold at risk? Now, you can be fairly general about this, but if you're going to attack a system, you have to understand that systems change with every software update. And what was a vulnerable system on Tuesday may not be a vulnerable system on Friday. Granted, it doesn't happen every week. But it happens often enough that you can't know with any degree of permanence that any particular target is at risk. Okay, well, then you can say, I will at least know that some targets are at risk at any point in time. And maybe you will. But let me give you a little scenario about when you won't, okay? Imagine a target. It's got a peacetime mode, which is relatively open, and a wartime mode, which is relatively closed. On Tuesday, you go into those, that target set, 
to, to carry out your espionage, and you say, aha, they're vulnerable. I'm looking at the target set, no problem. On Wednesday, the attacking government goes to its infrastructure and says, "Button, go into wartime mode now, because I'm going to carry out an attack, which they do on Thursday. And then on Friday, we look at the same infrastructure, and it's impermeable. I mean, this is an exaggeration, but I think I'm trying to convey a point. That it's possible for the permeability, for the vulnerability of an infrastructure to change. It's also, by the way, possible for the vulnerability of an infrastructure to have elements that you don't see. In other words, the process that does not kick in until conditions go to extremes that you've never seen because the condition has never gone to extreme before. Speaking of which, one of the things you're going to want to be interested in, in for a deterrence policy is how much harm can I cause the other fellow? Well, as it turns off, within a rough order of magnitude, the amount of harm you can do to a system is proportional to how long the system is disrupted or how long the system is corrupted. How are you going to know that? How did we know how Soviet fighter pilots were going to act? We had telemetry, we had seen them in World War II, we had a lot of evidence on them. What you're trying to do in cyberspace is to predict the ability of their system administrators to fix their problems in a short or long period of time. In other words, you're trying to predict the ability of people that you haven't seen to react to a situation that they haven't seen, which means you have two fuzz factors in, in order to predict battle damage assessment. That leads to a few dilemmas. Here's another dilemma. Cyber war may be fairly hard to control. First of all, you always have the escalation and the violence. You're familiar with the movie uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? You all remember that scene? I don't have to elaborate on that. The guy can take out a pistol after you. You may end up with third-party hackers. Which, now, I wouldn't exaggerate the possibility because they themselves have to do some preparation, but it's sort of like becoming open season once your own targets become vulnerable. Well, let me give you a scenario. The United States and another country are going tit-for-tat in cyberspace. We conclude, finally, it wasn't such a good idea. We meet at a bargaining table, we shake hands, we promise not to do it to each other. The next day, something gets hit. Who are we most likely to blame? The answer is the folks we were at war with the day before, right? But what if it was a third-party hacker? Maybe it was a third-party hacker which has an interest in having the United States and this other country at war with one another. That creates a, a difficult dilemma in terms of how you, start, how you stop something. And I haven't even gone into the whole command and control. This is one of the forms of war which you can do from your very own home. This makes it different from most other forms of warfare, which allows you to exercise command and control over kinetic forces in ways that you can't exercise over cyber forces. Let me conclude with a decision cycle, okay? Now, if this were nuclear war and we had a deterrent policy, it would be fairly simple. We got nuked, we nuke back, right? In cyber, it's not so simple. The first thing is because the first time you, when you get attacked, it will not necessarily be obvious that you got attacked. All it will be obvious is that your computer systems aren't working very well. So you have to ask yourself the question, did they go down because of hacking? If the answer is no, there isn't much you can do. Is this a crime or is this by nature of a military attack? If it turns out it's a crime, from a deterrence perspective, you can't do much, although you may want to call in the FBI because that's sort of what they do for a living. Okay? Can you attribute the attack? If you don't have enough confidence, you can't do anything. Okay? 
Now here it gets tricky. Are the effects obvious to the public? If the effects are not obvious to the public, you don't lose public face by not retaliating. At the same time, what you might want to do is retaliate in ways that it will not be obvious to their public. Because what you're trying to do is convey a message to the other side's leadership about the lack of wisdom of attacking the United States in cyberspace. Okay? Or, if it's an enemy, if it's somebody you dearly love to go after, you just do the reverse. Can the target make the attribution public? Okay? In other words, I can attribute it, but I can't say so in an open forum. So I don't have the ability to tell the rest of the world what's going on, and so I might want to keep things a little quiet. Okay? Do you have a way to retaliate? I used to say this 15 years ago and it hasn't changed any. Imagine a North Korean attack on the New York Stock Exchange. And imagine we want to retaliate in kind by taking out the Pyongyang Stock Exchange, only to find out that the North Koreans neglected to establish a stock exchange in the first place. A <laughs> little less facetiously, North Korea is not very well connected to the internet. So there's not exactly what I call a target-rich environment. Finally, will retaliation do more, uh, will retaliation do more good than harm? It's always nice to have a deterrence policy until the day you actually have to instantiate it. Then you might want to think again about how worthwhile your promise was. Now what if you do attack the country? Can the other side's leadership keep their public from wanting to go to war? An important consideration. So finally, you've worked through all of these questions. You've got eight straight yeses and you decide to retaliate in the hopes that the other side will get the message and stop the attack. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Okay, let me draw the conclusions. Now, hope I didn't pull too fast a one on you, but this was actually not the point I said I was going to drive when I started here. I was going to talk about cyber deterrence. But note how many times in the briefing I've had opportunity or compelled to say that cyber war is not simply kinetic war in another dimension. It's got a different set of rules, a different set of parameters, a different set of questions, a different set of answers. You can't simply drag your metaphor for 6,000 years of organized human war into the world of cyberspace and presume it makes sense. What makes sense in cyberspace makes sense because of the nature of cyberspace itself. Okay? So you have to marry consideration from first principles. Now finally, in terms of policy, I'm not going to advocate the United States never retaliate. I'm not going to advocate the United States announce a non-retaliation non policy. But this is one of those areas where you have to take a look at the balance between defense and deterrence and somehow come up with a happy medium. It is true that defense is expensive and defense is incomplete and we're having a great deal of trouble doing it. But it does not raise a lot of the problematic issues that re deterrence and retaliation do. So the best advice I'm going to say about that is we must be like the ancient carpenter who, cut, who measures twice before he cuts once. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.